Ark has been busy. He's revived plants, animals, and most recently, humans. Now, it's time to collect demographic data from dungeons, enemies, and the design spaces they occupy, tonight on the Commune Podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the Commune Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the first couple of dungeons from Chapter 3 of Terranigma. But before we get into anything, I just wanted to ask, WarioFan63, how have you been doing? I've been doing just fine. Alright. Very fine, in fact. Alright, let's not go overboard. Double fine. Oh no. <laughs> not in this podcast. Oh. Um, Adrian, how have you been doing? Uh, I've been doing fine. Been playing more Super Metroid, Zelda 2, Second Quest, Terra Enigma, and uh, my last gameplay game before I end my subscription, uh, Yoshi's New Island. Jesus. What? You play a lot. <laughs> it's not that much. I mean, I've only managed to get like a half an hour out of Zelda 2 and then another half out of Zelda 1, and then most of the time has been going to Super Metroid and Yoshi's New Island. I see, so you've maintained some focus there. Yeah. Alright. Zelda's a bit of a low priority at the moment. So I was intending to come back to ask what you had been playing. Was that that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, did I preemptively answer your question? <laughs> That's fine. Oh, but I just want to make sure moving, before moving on, was there anything else like you wanted to discuss more in depth about any of that? Oh yeah, I wanted to make an amendment about this way that oh, it, it's it's not as open as I made it out in the lab podcast because I actually went and then drew out uh, on graph paper and it's it's actually a lot more straightforward than it is. It's just that because it's so wide that you don't see the whole thing in the camera, it's easy to lose track of where you are if you're not drawing that map in your head. So there's like two or three branching pet not all branching alternate paths that go to like treasure chests and then you go back onto the main path and that's about it. I made that out to be way more open than it actually is. It's, it's actually not. It's just literally open, but not the other kind of open. <laughs> let's uh that's harkening back to yourself's notion that exploration is just seeing whatever is not on screen. And so in Zway, there's a lot of exploration, just finding out what is within the bounds of the room. Yeah. All right. And Shouty, how have you been doing? I've been doing okay. All right. What have you been playing? I've been playing Gyakuten Kenji 2, or as the fan translators like to call it, Ace Attorney Investigations, Miles Edsworth, Prosecutor's Path. <laughs> is that two subtitles? Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, and they say that Japanese titles to things are long-winded and kind of meaningless, but here, uh, you know, localized titles for Ace Attorney games are so long and all over the place. So is this a game we didn't get? Yeah, we didn't get this game, so that's why it got a fan translation. How is it? I don't know. It's Compared to the first one, It's I think it has... A little more in-depth story elements, but the cases are kind of 
too long and drawn out at times. Hmm. Okay. So it's a little more. And I think I'm I think I'm finding the formula for who I should suspect as the as like the antagonist of each case. It's usually someone who's either not seen a lot or is usually covered in a in a lot uh, in many layers of clothing, so their breakdown is a lot more spectacular. You're starting to see through the seams. Yeah. Does that ruin it for you? Uh, no. Sometimes there's satisfaction in getting guessing things right. Okay. I agree. Do you have experience with that kind of game, Adrian? <laughs> Super Metroid has a lot of that. Ah. Where uh, you can you can tell what the game designers are doing, but it's still satisfying to play out anyway. Yeah, and it's always fun finding things without having to use uh, either the X-ray scope or the map that you download from one of the map stations. All right. I thought you were going to say because Ridley's in a big wearing layers of cardigans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because I was about to say, normally the map is like all those areas that normally would have been bold in the first game. Like, how was I supposed to know the game? When you download the maps, they show you those rooms. And then when you actually like Crade's Lair, it's kind of hidden right behind the elevator. But if you download the map for Brinstar and look at the map, you'll notice, hey, there's a room over here, but there's a wall here. How do I get there? And that's when you're supposed to shoot the wall and blow it up. There's actually a similar trick in that in the first Legend of Zelda in level five where they do that exact same thing. So, yeah, something cool. So how did you find out that the download map gave you those clues if you had already been there? Hmm? Oh, how did I find... Oh, no, no, that's just something that um, I assumed. Oh, oh. I honestly don't remember one way or the other. It's been yeah. too long. I've only downloaded the map for... Wait, Criteria? what's the... Yeah, Criteria. So I didn't have the map for Brinstar, but that's what I'm assuming what they did for how players are supposed to, you know, suss out where Crate is. And that first area that allows you to even get to Brinstar in the first place. Okay. And Wario fan, what have you been playing? Uh, I just got done uh, playing some uh, Danganronpa. And what I is hear that? that. <laughs> I hear this name a lot, and I always forget what it is. It's like uh, I, I I think the name itself is like Japanese onomatopoeia. Uh, I mean, the title is like that, but you know, it it, it was used so much like when discussing the game and it just stuck for the localization so that's what it's known as here too but um the actual gameplay is like a weird take on ace attorney games normally you present contradictions at statements but this time you're like literally directly contradicting at the statements you're you're just the words just sort of exist they hover in space and that you you have to aim at them and shoot the contradicting at it is it like a schmuck oh, or what? I know exactly what he's talking about. There was something like that in Trauma Trauma Team, the adventure game sections where they had stuff like that where you have where the character will say something and you click on the word that sort of indicates whatever medical condition they have. Was it like that, Wario fan? It's um I haven't played Trauma Team, but it's I think it's like that, but it's a little more over the top. Over the top in what way? It's like just, zombie it's, cancer? It's over the top. It's just so over the top. Like, you mean the story? 
What is what is the plot I don't, I of this game? I haven't seen Trauma Team. I can't I can't compare. So I'll just what yeah. is the plot of this game? It, it's okay. A bunch of a bunch of high school students go to a high school, and then they get trapped in the high school. And to escape the high school, they have to you have to kill someone without getting away with it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. You had to kill someone with getting away with it. I don't remember was a. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Was it? There was another game. I think it was like nine nine nine, which yeah, it's kind of had a. Yeah, sim- it's got the spirit of nine 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 and Ace Attorney fused in the one. Wow, I really need to play more of these games because they always have like the coolest premises, and then I never actually play them. Well, I guess I wouldn't associate your tastes with like visual novel style games. Really? Why? Why would you say that? You seem really. I mean, I guess I've only heard you talk about action games, but you always seem really mechanically minded. Oh. But I mean. I, if you like reading and stuff, then it would make sense that you would enjoy this kind of game. Yeah, I Visual novels can have mechanics. Oh, you Just mean like, like in Ghost a Snatcher? The, the one or that Ghost dies. Trick. Yeah. Um, That's why I kind of enjoy those sections in Terranigma, where it's like you talk to someone, you find out that this guy's actually like a doctor who wants a potion, but he needs a special ingredient or whatever, and then you go up into the forest, and it's like, oh, hey, there's this weird mushroom thing that gives you... That I don't know. I don't know what he describes. And then you go in the mushroom and uh, the mushroom. You go in the forest and <laughs> find the mushroom. And then you give it to the guy. And he's like, "Oh, this will make everyone sleep." And it's like, "Oh, wait! I remember there was a big cooking room with a giant pot in it." And then I, you put the sleeping potion in the pot, and every and everyone in the castle falls asleep. And that's how you figure out to get past that one guard and go to the rooms where you're not supposed to go and get progress through the game. And it's like that kind of stuff is really satisfying. Okay, then that's definitely, like, what visual novels are. Yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of do that in, to a much lesser extent in action-adventure games where, you know, even like Zelda, they have that kind of thing. Of course, depending on who you ask, they might absolutely hate talking to people and be a total... (laughs) Be a total... (laughs) I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, let's get away from this. This is a can of worms I don't want to open. <laughs> I'll I'll op- I'll make that video when I make it. Can of worms 3D. Um <laughs> Yeah, next time we'll have to pull for uh Jesus Kyofuno Bio Monster. For this upcoming segment, I asked folks to pick a single enemy and really ponder it. How's it work? How's it compare to other enemies? The result is a discussion that touches on gameplay strategies and dungeon design. So this time I wanted to talk about Terranigma enemies, look at them uh, up close get a sense of the design space that they fill out. And Mario fan, I wanted to look at your enemy first. Which one did you choose? I chose the Soul Knight in uh, in the uh, Sylveon dungeon. Uh, Sylvain? What did I say? Sylveon? What's the difference? <laughs> One's a Pokemon, the other's a location. <laughs> oh! So why did you choose the Soul Knight? Well, I suppose, honestly, I could have chosen either that or the Cursed Armor, 
but like um just the idea that uh when I entered these dungeons I was very weak to either the living armor types because they're just hard, you know, you would hit them and they would do like one or two damage and, and, and then they would hit you and they would do like thirty, forty damage and it's like, oh no, I'm dying. <laughs> One thing that I like, though, before you hit a point where you can level up and just utterly destroy these guys, you can kind of trap them in a corner and just sort of bash the weapon button and then just sort of push them back, you know, doing minimal damage. But at the same time, it's it's enough that you can do it before they hit you. So it, it takes minutes, but, you know, you can you can beat these guys even when you're very weak. So is that satisfying to do? In in a way it is because it's like these these are intimidating enemies here and then uh, once you figure out a way to catch them off guard like that and then you you beat them it's like hey I can I can conquer anything in this castle. <laughs> so yeah, you've described that it's pretty similar to the cursed armor I think it was called right right yeah uh, where it has really high defense and also where you can cancel their attack animations by getting them to recoil. Was there anything that made it distinct from the cursed armor? I believe the uh, the mace it had was different, right? Or or no, it had a shield that the cursed armors didn't usually have. Right. So you yeah. have to make sure your attack has like a proper rhythm to it. Right. Yeah, definitely. So so those guys have an extra layer of strategy where you have to they're, they're, you got to catch them while they're unguarded too. And I was wondering what makes those enemies similar to the other enemies in the dungeon, like the skeletons, the Chakras, the bats. Well, maybe not the bats. <laughs> well, I don't know if this is exclusive to the castle, but the, the chakras and the red skeletons for sure have like a defensive uh, strategy to them. How do you mean? Well, the red skeletons, you know, you 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 beat them up and they go boom, and you got to make sure that you you know don't get in the way of the boom. Catch <laughs> you. You're like, oh, I'm dead, but watch out! I'm gonna throw my dead bones at you, and you're gonna take some damage. And then the chakras, they can kind of catch you in their webs if you're not quick enough to avoid those. Okay, so these are like pretty detailed enemies that you need to learn. It's not like bats or saber wolves where they just sort of go at you. you right. You need to take into account what they will do in order to protect yourself. Exactly. Did you notice that the Soul Knight was paired with any other enemies? Well, the first time you encountered it, it's on its own. It's like uh, It kind of presents itself as like a mid-boss. Yeah. Then, uh, later on in the dungeon, you come up to a room with like uh, two of them next to each other there. So um, I think that was about the only time where where you encountered it after seeing it after it gives you that first impression. And then I think it, you know, that, that might supposed to scare you to like think like, oh no, the mid boss is a common enemy now. What the heck am I gonna do? I spent <laughs> thirty minutes beating this guy before. Now there's two of them. <laughs> Actually, you did mention that the mid boss. He first appears as a mid-boss, and that's one of the few things that he gets paired with. There are six things on the sides that will spawn fireballs that shoot at you. Oh, yeah. The candles. Yeah. So that was neat that, like, the first instance was kept interesting by having those fireballs keep you on your toes. That's right. But the subsequent fights, you know, you don't really need to pay. You don't need to pay attention to. You might want to if you want experience. Um right. And so their setups are not as intense. Right. So it's like that, that first fight's like, you know, you got this enemy that's basically a cursed armor, which up until that point you've been doing one or two damage with. 
not only that, but he's got a shield. And not only that, but there's candles spitting fireballs at you. So there's a lot to watch out for in that fight. It's uh, I think it's pretty dynamic. So do you think it would be fair to pair it with other enemies? I, I think in the sense that because it gives you the impression it's a mid-boss, I, I think it's kind of fair that uh, it, they kind of put it up against with itself again. Like, instead of throwing at you a bunch of skeletons or bats around it, too, it's like, you know, just a, a room with just that mid-boss guy, another one of him, but you can avoid them both if you want to. Yeah, it might be a little too intense if they gave you genuine challenges. Or not genuine, but, you know, challenges that you were forced to encounter. Yeah. Okay. Although Bloody Mary doesn't give me the impression that they had fairness in mind. No, that's, that's you know, it's just awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bloody Mary is like its own. It's awful. Oh, if anyone is already done, I think I have one comment about the uh, Soul Knights. Sure, go ahead. Or that one comment, more like a lot. Uh, in general, I'm kind of not fond of these enemies because, see, I've been playing at, like, I just leveled up to level 19. So one of the things is that these guys take a really long time to kill. <laughs> I was 17, so. <laughs> oh, God, that's worse. I'm at 23. There's also another thing that is, um, like, it, it's this, it's the same strategy that I can kind of rely on where I just do constant dash attacks back and forth, back and forth. And when they take that long to die, yeah, that wears on my thumbs. But I found an even simpler trick that's actually more efficient, but also more kind of brain dead. And that is when you got them back to a wall, you could pretty much just stand there and slowly mash the button, the A button to hit them and then just stand there, keep doing that, and you'll hit him every single time. He won't even be able to let out an attack. As long as you don't do the rapid fire, because for whatever reason, I don't know, that that didn't work. Yeah, but yeah. That, um, that was something that Wario Fan was mentioning, that he was discussing that you could cancel their attack animation. Like, you have enough time to do so. Yeah, the th- yeah but the thing that I find is that it it kind of goes into a sort of a heat man thing where you're kind of just doing the same repetitive action until they die. Yeah. Enemies also, in this game do often leave themselves open to that where they won't attack uh, until long after their uh, invincibility animation or invincibility period has expired. So you can it, back them into a wall and then just repeatedly hit them. Yeah, the, it's it's the same thing with the Heat Man where he goes into a sort of loop that's kind of easy to abuse. The other thing is, um, there is one Soul Knight that is actually required to kill to open the gate in the right tower. Oh, that's yeah. right. The there. yeah, and that's where I found out you could do that. Otherwise, most no no, there's several other areas where they put those things in tight tight areas, but um, the most they ever pair those things up with is. Like, there was only one moment where I was in between two of those things, which you really don't want to be. Because even if you can dash attack through one of the chains, the other one can just throw his chain in that very brief period where you are trying to do another dash attack. So yeah, I got hit by that. And also, their sprites are so huge that it's easy. You hit one, and then you dive right into the sprite of the other one. <laughs> so It's a ping pong. Yeah. 
But otherwise, even then, that trick still worked where you can, if you can separate them, the only difference is that I, you hit them, they hold up their shield, you walk a little bit, then hit them again, and then just do that over and over. You get them to a wall and then keep doing it until they're, until they're dead. But otherwise, the other thing is with pairing enemies, I don't think they leave themselves much room to be paired with other enemies because one of the things that I think of when I see those enemies are the, uh, the ball and chain troopers from Link to the Past. And those are not, those are not the kind of enemies that lend themselves to being in groups. Like, you can maybe have one other of the same kind of enemy, but, um, I haven't quite nailed down the reason for it. I think it has to do with how strict the interplay has to be. Whereas with other, other types of Zelda enemies, you know, like Choose or Wolfos or whatever, you pretty much just hit them whenever you want. But when you have an enemy that does more to react to you, like he goes, puts up a shield, and then has a very long-range two-step attack. Yeah, that's the kind of enemy you don't... Typically, you don't see paired up with other enemies because you don't want to put players into impossible situations. And I know the first Zelda definitely has problems with that with <laughs> blue whiz robes. That was something that made Shinneketsu Koha really interesting towards like the disco area. They started doing that. Um, but yeah, in general, games are not balanced to support pairing up enemies where you have like really tiny windows for attacking. Yeah. So the main thought I had on my mind was that they all uh aside from that, all of the enemies have a long range attack. The Cursed Armor and Soul Knight have the mace. And that's like its own property where it boomerangs in and out and you cannot block it. Both the the skeleton and the red skeleton will throw bones and will explode into bones when they die. And those are really easy to see projectiles that go in a straight line and you can block them. I didn't realize you could block the the bones they threw. Oh, yeah. I could I would either dash attack through them because the dash attack not only functions as an attack but also as a way to block uh most enemies attack. So even the the ball and chains that the iron nut did the, whatever soul knights that they throw, you can you can dash attacks right right through them. Okay. But um, for the bone enemies, I didn't know that you could just block them. Yeah, that's important to know for when they blow up. Yeah. And that's just in general. Uh, it's hard to keep the X block or whatever it's called in mind uh, because it's so rarely useful. Yeah. And um, oh, also you can jump over the bones when they explode. Oh. I didn't notice that. I don't try to jump over things because I'm not too sure of what the collision rules are. The chakra shoots out a spider web, can't be blocked, and the spider web like pulls you in. Uh, I don't get why, but it yeah. does that. It's like a vacuum. Yeah. Spider web. Didn't make any sense. Um. <laughs> the chakra will also jump at you. Yeah, but that's not. I think that's what makes Chakra unique amongst the Sylvain enemies, is that it will leap directly at you, whereas other enemies rely more on their uh, long-range attacks to get at you. So I think that's where uh, you would begin talking about Sylvain enemies uh, in general, just like comparing their different long-range attacks. Hmm. I guess it's also worth noting that it was mentioned that enemies in this dungeon were really easy to back into a corner and hit repeatedly, and one enemy in particular that gets around that problem are the ghouls in Lu'ran, 
who will, uh, once their head is exploded, th- they will keep moving at you no matter what, even if you attack them. Yeah. So they do a good job of keeping combat dynamic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. They have a good way, they have a good counter for you. Yeah. And even then, you also have to worry about the other ones in the room, because the twin-tailed ghouls, they actually throw their heads at you. Yeah. Explode. <laughs> it's pretty funny until you die. Yeah. Not only that, but you can only defeat them if they have their heads attached to their bodies. Yep, that that was another thing that um makes them so, harder than the more adult ghouls. If you want to talk about strict interplay, the ghoul girls will... So you attack them, their head explodes, their next one spawns in, flies at you, the next one spawns in, and they don't attack you. And then the flow begins again. So there are a couple of steps that happen from you just attacking, and you have to wait them out yeah. before you can attack again. Oh, I uh, I found when I was fighting those enemies that I didn't have to really wait it out because again, I can just you can just dash attack through it. But um, you do yeah yeah you gotta you gotta survive wait out the uh, the head coming back. But once it does, that's your chance to get a hit on them and hopefully yeah. kill them. But if they still have more health, then, um, you know, the fight keeps going. I guess, actually, um, it's neat that attacking them engages their attack rather than cancels it. That's kind of unique for a Terranigma enemy. Yeah. Oh, those uh, Warlock things in Norfest, when you hit them, they have those that little ring of fire that comes out when they die. I think they spawn that anyway. Oh. They just always spawn those. But the collapsing is friggin' annoying. Not I'm not properly sure leveled. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am underleveled, so... But, uh, we're digressing. Shouty, which enemy did you choose? I chose the bats that are in Norfest. And what makes it distinct? You can hide in the trees and come out and surprise you. Yeah, there's that one screen... I think it's uh, two screens after the first bridge screen, where you run past a big opening, and then there are, like, six that drop out of trees. Oh, yeah. So what made it similar to the other enemies in that dungeon? It's like the warlock in that it can give you a status effect that involves not moving around. Oh, the bats can paralyze you? Yeah, the bats and the warlocks can mobilize you in different ways. Okay. I guess uh, I was comparing them to the saber wolves personally in that, like, both of them just, their attack is tracking you. Oh. There is that as well, then. Yeah. I guess enemies in other dungeons tend to have attacks other than just walking at you, right? Yeah. And what enemies were the bats often paired with? Um, they're mostly with the wolves, but on one occasion they're with warlocks. Okay. And how was the fight between the bats and the warlocks? Did that bring out anything interesting? I don't think so, because they're, they're, they're both just enemies that can paralyze you. So you think maybe that was a little redundant? Yeah. But with the wolves, saber wolves, uh, the saber wolves can poison you. So if the bats can paralyze you, they they give the saber wolves a chance to poison you. Oh, I didn't even notice that. They can, like, team up. Yeah. So, Adrian, you wanted to discuss the saber wolves, right? Yeah. So what made those distinct for the enemies in uh, Norfest? Okay. Um, The first thing is that... um, there were wolves in 
Eclamata, I believe. Saber dogs. No. Yeah, saber dogs. But what makes the wolves different, and this was something that I was actually, that I actually had to discover was, if you hold still, the saber wolves will do, they, they sort of go in a di- diagonal movement. But what they do is they will deliberately go for your blind spot. Now, as you know, Ark can only face four directions. Even though he has diagonal movement, he can only attack north, south, east, west. And they will deliberately go in that dead zone where you can't hit diagonal. And that was something that took me a while to notice because I'm like, wow, these things are hitting me a lot more than I thought because I was still using the, um, you know, the dash attack trick. That was the first time when that trick, you know, the dash attack didn't feel super powerful. And it's like, oh, I have to freaking pay attention to what I'm doing here because they are exploiting that weakness where you can't hit diagonal. And that was what made them uh, so interesting. So, yeah, you you kind of have to, I don't know, play footsies with them. Yeah, I, I totally missed that, but that does... I mean, thinking back to all the frustrations I had with them, that's definitely why. If they attacked me head-on, I could just block them with a spear. Yeah. So what made it similar to the other enemies in Norfest? They are also a tracking enemy where their behavior is relative to your position. That's how they're similar to Norfest. They also like to come out of the trees or hide behind the sprites of the trees, which... Uh, can definitely catch you off guard. And I believe they are paired up with... Yeah, we, we already established they were paired up with the bats. And I'm not sure if they were paired up with the warlocks. I want to say they are, but I can't so, be sure 100%. Uh, according to my notes uh, of dubious quality, uh, they are only paired up with bats, and then on one screen they get paired with will-o'-wisps. Will-o'-wisps? What were those things? But those the caterpillars? No. Uh, you can't attack those, so I didn't take any notes. But, um, oh, okay. The will-o'-wisps are the, like, the, they look like wisps, except they come out of the lake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. They're kind of like Zola's from Legend of Zelda. They come out of the water and then they go at your position. Yeah. Zora's. Jesus. Ah, <laughs> eh, whatever. It's the first game. They're called Zola. Yeah. Uh,. Legend of Zola. <laughs> oh, you also mentioned that it tracked you like other enemies. But that's not... Yeah, that's what most enemies do in Terranigma, right? Not all of them. The skeletons, for instance, they kind of just wander around, and but they do have a line of sight. So there they function more like um, like the troops in Link to the Fat... The, the <laughs> Link to the Past, I can't speak English today, where they wander around, but if you're on in their line of sight, then they'll attack you, and sometimes they'll attack you, but then they just go back on their merry way again. So they're really more like those uh, thieves in Level 4 in Link to the Past, where they turn their head, they shoot, but then they just keep wandering around the room. So, so, uh, so Norfest is pretty consistent about enemies being intelligent about where you are. Yeah. Or actually I think the warlocks the warlocks would be the exception because um there have been moments where I was fighting a warlock and they do that thing where they teleport and then they're sort of like barely barely off screen but enough to the point where they kind of forgot where I was. Oh yeah, and they um they do attack when they have a line of sight, but they 
also have a tendency to just wander around, right? Yeah, same thing with the Saber Wolves, but the thing is because this, the Saber Wolves, they're a bit more relentless, so when they do their little diagonal attack, they just turn around and face your direction again and try to flank you again, so yeah, that's where they're different. They're not attack once, go back to wander pattern, go back to wander AI. It's attack and keep attacking unless you run far enough away that they, uh, they're like, oh, I, where'd he go? So it sounds like Northfest had like a variety of pacing where some enemies were, would keep on you and other enemies would just kind of do their own thing. Like the, the warlocks and the will-o'-wisps might be easier to shake. Yeah, there, there was definitely variation in Northfest. Uh, Terranigma, in general, it feels pretty good with variation. I don't know. I think the only pet peeve I would have is that um, some enemies I would like to exit. I would like to see them in more than just one level, but uh, what can you do? <laughs> so, Shadi, I was wondering if you had any other thoughts on how Sylvain enemies fit together. Like, if there were what ideas are commonly explored in enemy design, and what ideas are not ex- commonly explored in enemy design. Like, how do you say what's not there? It's, well, um, that's anything. It's not there. Like, I don't see any... Like blocking. There's no enemies that can be blocked in uh, Northwest. Oh. Oh, oh, is that true? Yep. Can't, yeah. You can't block the uh, fireballs from oh. Warlock. Or the Will-O-Wisp. Oh. Mm, that is true. Oh, so my, those questions are just trying to aim at, like, establishing the consistent theme of in a, dun, enemies in a dungeon. And I was wondering if any themes came out to you. I thought the theme of Norfest was enemies that snuck up on you. Yeah. Adrian did mention that they like to sneak out of trees, and that is... The, the uh, bastards to sneak out of trees, the willows like to sneak out of the lake, uh... The Sabrewolves try to get to your, get to your blind spot. Oh, yeah, that's true. That kind of works. And there's that dark section. Yeah, that is pretty smart how they let all of the enemies take advantage of that aspect of the level design. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was particularly compelling that, like, the bats track you, but they're pretty slow. So you can... So it takes them a while to get to you. And the saber wolves are pretty fast, but if they miss you, uh, they skid and have to turn around. Yeah. So that I thought that was an interesting... Uh, they played off of each other well, and that they both had ways of uh, missing you. Yeah. There's not too many, too many elements with the same speed. Because, I mean, having too many things coming at you from eight different directions that all move at the same speed doesn't give you a, a way to get out of that. Well, so. <laughs> I think, uh, like, Loran and Sylvain had enemies with pretty consistent speed, right? Loran had those ghosts. Oh, yeah, but they were, yeah, they were also, uh, the ghouls. Yeah, they were generally slow, though, and they had the to ghosts. rely on... Well, well look, all, yeah, all the ghoul enemies were slow, but... Yeah, and so yeah. were, like, the skeletons and the armors and Sylvain. They were pretty slow, too. Yeah. What I mean is that, um, fast-moving enemies... Like, I don't think there was ever more than maybe three three wolves in any given area. Yeah. Yeah, it was usually one or two. Maybe three if they called for help and they were successful. Yeah. All right. 
next, we've got another combat-centric discussion. The dash move. When Ark performs his dash attack, he's fast, he's powerful, and he's invincible. What's there to balance this? Or maybe we should back up and ask, what kind of balance do we even want? I also wanted to discuss the balance of the move set in Terranigma. Uh, in particular, there is one offending attack that has come up previously in this same, this very same podcast, uh, the dash attack, uh, which is one of your more powerful attacks. It's not quite as powerful as your jump attacks, but it's, it's pretty close. And it also grants you quite a few invincibility frames. If you do it perfectly, I think you're invincible like all of the time, but it's hard to do perfectly. So, WarioFan63, with that in mind, I was wondering, do you think that the dash attack is properly balanced? Yes. Yes is my answer. Because it gives you strength and invincibility at the same time. That's that's complete, you know. I like that. <laughs> that, did, that didn't sound like you were describing balance. What do you mean? It's balanced <laughs> towards me winning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh... I guess you do have to ask, what is it balanced for? So is that to say the game would be worse without it? I don't know. I, I kind of button mash as it is anyway. <laughs> button mash the attack button. So I, I, I kind of consider the jump attack and the dash attacks like, you know, these, these reserved mechanics for when I absolutely need them. So most of the time you're just going around, uh, like straight up poking stuff. Essentially. Um, the, uh, the Adel Christian mechanic. <laughs> uh, Ark might be a little flimsy for that. Adol doesn't need a dash attack. It just rolls <laughs> through everything. So, like, the regular attack has been getting you through enemies well enough that you haven't looked into using the jump attack or dash attack except in extreme situations? For the most part, I kind of forget they're even there. Huh. I mean, uh, I, I've been e- e- trying to use it with... Uh, you know, Bloody Mary, but, you know, before that, I kind of honestly just sort of t- tackle on enemies, uh, you know, with the basic, basic attack. Okay. And Adrian, do you think the dash attack is balanced? That is a, it's definitely a hard, harder question for me to answer because, um, it's, it, it's kind of the thing that I've been, cause I mean, I know there's, um, a technique in Devil May Cry 3 where you can switch cancel and it basically allows you to keep letting out attacks and letting them out fast too. And I know there's even a boss where you can pretty much jump in the air and kill him by just relentlessly attacking before you even touch the ground. That's how powerful it is. Although it's, it's, it takes effort to do. And the thing with the, uh, the dash attack and doing it consistently is that it does take effort to do. And I think they did that by putting it on the Y button and the A button on purpose so that it's not, so that it actually hurts my thumbs when I try to do it consistently for a long period of time. But um, the thing is that when you can do it and you can do it consistently like I can, it does make the game significantly simpler. Like I would say I would just rather straight up fight enemies in, D- in Devil May Cry 3 than using switch canceling at all. And I tried doing that for this one. I tried to not rely on it so much. Uh, the thing is that I stopped doing that around Sylvan Castle when it was 
getting to the point that uh, enemies are taking so long to die that I just like I'm just gonna keep doing the dash attack so I can hop back and forth between them and dash attack them to death. Are you saying that it's balanced by being difficult to perform? Not really. I mean, I understand the placement of the buttons a bit more now because I think they didn't want that. But um, it, it's not like it's not super impossible to do. I mean, we're not talking Smash Brothers here. We're not talking looping pit arrows <laughs> or anything insane like that. It's hell. We're not even talking switch canceling because even that is a pretty tight rhythm. Or actually, no. Depending on which weapons you do, it's a tight rhythm or not. But um, I don't think making something hard to do is always the best way to make it balanced. Because the thing is, like, once you get it, and you are going to have players that will get it, the game becomes a lot simpler. Is that to say that this just isn't balanced? I'm thinking that, but uh, that's the thing. is like It's just a hypothesis. It's, it's one that I still need to think about a lot more. Because I have, I did think about, you know, the difference between things being powerful, but then them also being hard to do. And I'm still kind of pondering that over a bit. So, yeah, I don't know if it's balanced. Also, I know once the, uh, the wolves started getting at me in Norfest, I think that was also the point when I stopped using Dash, or no, that's when I started using it again, then realizing, oh crap, this is working. I feel like that was the point that made me think that, you know, this thing, when you get good at it, it's, it's actually kind of a crutch. And you don't, and that's why I want to kind of play Terranigma more without relying on the dash attack so much. Unless you're fighting a boss like Bloody Mary who takes friggin' forever <laughs> to kill. So, at least in your personal experience, it did decrease your enjoyment of the game. That's what you were describing with the crutch. Yeah, but um, I think as long as there's a more interesting way to play... And it's not the one that requires me to do finger uh, gymnastics. Yeah, let's say that 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 doesn't require me to do finger gymnastics. Then you know what? I'm fine. Okay. Yeah, it's not game breaking, or it it it's it easy to play in the way that's more fun. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Shouty, do you think the dash attack is balanced? Yeah, I think that there is uh, enough complicated startup. And if there was a period of vulnerability after using it, that is balanced, even though it does give you invincibility while the attack is going on, and the damage is much higher than normal attacks. Yeah, I should also um, back him up on that, and that there have been times when I've tried to abuse the invincibility of the dash attack, and I've just been knocked out of it. Partly because, although that could partly be because I poorly timed it. Yeah, the timing, um, not that strict. But if you try to abuse it and use it on everything, then you are going to come up against some limitations. Or what I mean with that is, um, like, in the Bloody Mary fight, she has those skeletons that move around, right? Like, yeah. sometimes, when I started getting lazy and not dash attacking as much, and jumping over them didn't quite work as well, I tried going back to using a dash attack, and but I started not paying attention, and then I ended up um, dash attacking through one, but not having the space to let out the other dash attack before the other skeleton hit me. And that's what happened. Also, sometimes I... The thing with the uh, the Iron Soul Knights, where I dash attack and I'm still inside their sprites, so do not, hit, do not dash attack through them vertically. Do it horizontally, because their sprite is long, but it's not wide. And sometimes I get... I ignore that because I get dumb and lazy, and I pay for it. Okay. 
So, Shouty, do you think the game would be worse without the dash attack? Yeah, I, I don't think it would have as much sense of flow as it does now. It keeps you moving about the room and through enemies? Mm-hmm. Okay. I Certainly having to line yourself up slowly with an enemy is going to take more time, and uh, it's going to make combat more, like, stilted, I guess. But you can still move around even if you miss with the dash attack. Yeah. I guess what I would like to see is uh, the dash attack as a weaker attack, like maybe the rapid spear attack, um, and then it would function largely as a dodge, and the attack would be sort of a secondary function. So you would still have the like the cool moving around rules from it, but it wouldn't be the same overpowered, really strong attack. Yeah, I think that that could work because um, wait, don't doesn't one of the Zelda games have a role? That uh, all of the 3D ones do. No, no, no. I mean, apparently one of the four swords you can roll, and Minish Cap does that. Minish Cap. I've never played Minish Cap. So, yeah, so I think if you removed it, I don't think it'd be a big deal. I mean, WarioFan already said that um, he's been mostly playing it without the dash attack and um, changing it to be a, just a dodge move. I think that might actually balance the game out more because you have this, because right now it functions as both an attack and a dodge because you get invincibility frames from it. So yeah, exactly. if it was if it was just a dodge then you still have to do, you know, classic 2D Zelda, line up your attack and hit them. Yeah. In- instead of um, darting across the room, ping-ponging around. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do. I just ping-pong between the enemies and I, I can wreck them. Yeah, you could make several gifts of uh, doing that in this game. <laughs> so, Adrian, I think you already mentioned a move that was overpowered from a game that you have played. Um, the Switch cancel from Devil May Cry 3. Yeah. I should, um, should mention though that, um, one is that that is not useful in every enemy. I just know that it's on some of the bosses. It can be some of the large bosses, I believe, Leviathan and Beowulf. That thing can freaking destroy them. A uh, Beowulf, though, you, you need to be a lot more careful because he does punch around in the air. But if you do jump canceling, you can pretty much just jump over it, well, attack him all you want. Actually, jump canceling is what you do on him, not uh, switch canceling. Although I think switch canceling might also work. I don't know, but yeah, you can you can wreck him. Actually, jump canceling in general is the more powerful one. So I should have been talking about that. <laughs> do you enjoy the game more or less because of these cancels? I'm a bit neutral. I, I guess you could say they're neat, but I don't necessarily care for them. Okay. I don't know. I, it, it is it is cool when you can do something hard like that. It's like perfect shielding, like that kind of thing is just cool, but it, it's not the same because it's a cancel. It's something that's made make you more powerful. So let's just say I'm, I'm mixed. I don't have any conclusive opinion of better or worse. I'm just like there are pros and cons. All right, well, that's fair. Shouty, is there a game that with an over, overpowered move that you can think of? I don't want to say it, but it's the only one I know. Uh-oh. And it's Super Smash Smash Brothers Melee with its wave dashing. 
Ah. So, (laughs) does that influence your enjoyment of Super Smash Brothers? Yeah, it does, actually. Or at least Melee. It's one of the reasons why I don't really care for competitive Melee, because it's like, it's... Like, I compare it to snaking in Mario Kart. It's it's a crutch you need to know how to do in order to get into the competitive scene because everyone else is doing it because it's so uh, useful, even though well, it's, it's just an exploit. Isn't that everything in the game? Like, you need to know what? how the game works to play competitively? Well, no, but you don't need to know exploits well, to play the game like that. Yeah. So you're... If, Part of your calculation just, of whether or not you enjoy Melee is, uh, like, a consideration for what was intended by the programmers. Yeah. Like, Sakurai was going to remove it, but he kept it in anyway. Okay. I think the similarity between snaking and wave dashing is, um, those are things that you need to be pretty good with your thumbs with. And the thing with both of them is that in many ways they are more powerful than your base movement to the point, almost to the point where your base movement is almost pointless. So like, if you're playing competitively for Mario Kart, don't drive in a straight line. (laughs) Just snake until you see a turn that you can't really snake. So Uh, what about casual, uh, smash then? Casual smash, you can have fun with that. But um, I mean competitive. But if you yeah, yeah. Shouty, do you enjoy casual melee? I don't play melee. I think it's ugly, and I don't like the characters. So wave dashing is kind of irrelevant there. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, it is kind of ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it looks good. Like it's the ugliest Smash Brothers. I, the, I, uh, the other two are more colorful, right? The other two are more colorful and... No. I actually, I actually don't like what they did to Mario in Brawl, where he looks yeah, I don't very like how oddly realistic. And I don't, I don't like, like how his see... denim. I don't yeah, like you... how his overalls look more denim than my jeans. Yeah, <laughs> it's like actual <laughs> denim, and Bowser looks like almost uh, realistic, like he's scaling. Uh, and even the actual yeah. Mario level, it's like yeah, but Bowser is more. Bowser is more improved in Brawl than compared to Melee. He looks. He looks like the worst Bowser I've ever seen in Melee. But overall, I think Smash 4, Wii U, and 3DS look better. Oh yeah, it, it looks, it looks, it looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, before we delve too deep on Smash, I was wondering, Wario fan, can you think of any overpowered moves from games that you've played? I can't think of a specific move, but I remember in, uh, when I was playing Dragon Quest VII for PlayStation Uno, uh, <laughs> that game was so heavily built on, you know, job classes. And there were job classes you could only access if you got very advanced in other job classes and so on. And, like, there's, like, a some ultra-powerful move you could get if you had mastered a job class that you could only join if you had mastered, like, several other job classes. So I remember working really hard with like my entire party so that they would all learn that move. Wow. <laughs> and then, or, or I don't know if it was the entire party, but I'm sure I had more than one person know it. And I would use that on all these boss monsters and I would just feel like, you know, king of the world there. So that increased your enjoyment of Dragon Quest Seven. 
it, yeah, it did because there are a couple uh, optional bosses and whatnot I was having trouble with, and that would just I would plow through them out, and that was just boom. What about the time it took to master that skill? Was that like, did you enjoy that? Honestly, yes. I think uh, the way Dragon Quest Seven handled the uh, job advancement was just kind of fun for me. I think because um, it, it, it was less based on like. Uh, you know, specific experience points go to that job class, but it was just very simplistic in that each battle would advance the job class one level just for fighting in the battle as that job class. Okay. So it was just, I think they might have fixed it for the remake actually, but honestly, I, I kind of had fun grinding in that game. Sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was worried you were going to start talking about job canceling. No. <laughs> Switch to Blue Mage. Oh, cancel that. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if that was, you know, the best example, but, like, you know, I, I think I'm more of a brute force sort of player, though, so. No, I it, think that's appropriate that, like, um, with the dashing and with the cancels in DMC3 and the wave dashing in Melee, a uh, pretty consistent thread is that it takes some level of mastery to get to the point where you have this move that can be abused. And it sounded like in Dragon Quest VII, uh, it was quite a long path to get to that point. Definitely. Want to know one that isn't hard to use? Let's have it. So, this is going to be another answer before you get your turn to answer this question, and that is Metal Man's Metal Blade in Mega Man 2. Oh, no. Yes. Actually, that's the one I thought of when writing this question, and then I totally forgot about it until you just said it. Oh, well, looks like I answered it for you. So, Greg, why do you think this move is overpowered? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work on everything, but certainly it works on a lot of things. And uh, Mega Man is often balanced so that enemies are just outside of your range of fire and you you have to expend some effort getting, in, getting them into your range. And uh, the weapon set in Mega Man 2 is balanced so that you have different ways of getting at different ranges where, like... Uh, so the leaf shield can go up, down, left, and right, and it can cut through swaths of enemies, and the uh, air shooter will go up, and the bubble lead will go down. And st- But uh, the metal blade kind of borks the whole system by just saying it can go anywhere you friggin' want at any time, uh, and it goes really quickly. And it also does a lot of damage. And you can also use it a lot. But that increases my enjoyment of Mega Man 2. So for Terranigma, that dashing move decreased my enjoyment because naturally I want to dash and move quickly. And asking me to walk the whole time just to experience combat properly kind of sucks. But in Mega Man 2, it's not mechanically difficult not to select the Metal Blade. And if I want to have just like a casual Mega Man 2 experience where I mow down stuff with the Metal Blade, um, then I can do that. So for me, the difference between playthroughs is more meaningful than in most Mega Man games. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't want an abusive weapon in each Mega Man game. It kind of makes Mega Man 2 unique in that it does have the abusable weapon. And I think it's appropriate that that has not been repeated. So when Mega Man 2 is everyone's favorite? It. I never thought. Actually, I have no idea which Mega Man is everyone's favorite, but um, 
I, I was Mega would Man not two. assume. I would not assume it was Mega Man two. I would assume it would be like three or something. Two and three are the On ones three. people talk about a whole lot, but honestly, I don't. I mean, Mega Man games are all so similar and they're all so technically minded that I think you would need to like. Casual commentary from what Joe Blow on the internet thinks is the best Mega Man game is not going to be a good source on anything about Mega Man. Yeah, for well, all I know, I'm not looking for good source. I'm looking or what or te- technical and like, analysis. I'm looking like, for what what people just like, what their opinions are. Yeah, it's, it's I just, always thought it was Mega Man Two was the best because it has the best music, the best. You know, it's a it's a really good sequel. Yeah, even if it's just. You know, the average show opinions. Although, if you ask me, I think Mega Man 9 and 10 are way better than 2. Say, so, yeah, in mm-hmm. that case, I, Joe Blow would say 2 is his favorite. Yeah. And I would say, I don't care if it's your favorite. <laughs> well, <laughs> Joe Blow is, you know. So many... he, he's he's know. listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Joe. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> also, for all I know, Mega Man's four, five, and six could easily be better than two. Oh, friggin'! Oh my God, this could easily turn into Mega Man cast, but we should record the conclusion first. We should not. <laughs> Didn't you have something like that, you know, at one time, Golem? Uh, Eric Lee Lewis. We yeah. recorded one and two, and then. Adrian, you might recognize this question. Um, <laughs> Wario Fan 63, you've played Pikmin, right? I have. Is it an RTS? I, I think yes. I, I think, well, I mean, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of what, my impression from StarCraft is that like, you, you, you micromanage and tell things what they do and you watch it all happen in real time from like, a god perspective. But Pikmin, does that but you're actually taking part in the field so it's like sort of a sub thing of rts i think like an action it's RTS? a moba yeah or a moba moba would make more no sense. it's not a moba it's i not. was joking <laughs> oh it's... I, I was i, was I honestly don't know how mobas work well the first word in moba yeah. is multiplayer so oh <laughs> then yeah, yeah that would yeah so like i don't Olimar think it's does. an rts in the traditional sense of what RTS usually means, but I, I think it could fall as like a specific type of RTS. A subset or something? A, yeah, a sub-genre. A tangent. That's right. An alternate timeline. Exactly. An, an AU. <laughs> the a genre timeline. which only Pikmin occupies. <laughs> um, <laughs> And maybe Herzog's way to a lesser extent. I think, uh, well, Battalion Wars was almost like that, but kind of not. I've never played it. And then they always tell me Overlord games are kind of like it, too. Oh, yeah, Overlord. Man, Game Game Hikers love that. So, Shouty, is Pikmin an RTS? Well, I don't play it like one, if that's what you mean. Okay, uh, what is the difference between your play style in an RTS and in Pikmin? I think, um, in my, in, a, in like an RTS, I try to actually micromanage units. 
But in Pikmin, I don't really have that much of an opportunity. Like, I might just, I like, I just try to get the number required for each piece of um, fruit, ship part, or treasure, depending on which game I'm playing, or I just swarm enemies at whatever, at, at any opportunity. I don't really think about the number of units I am assigned to each task, unless it's the bare minimum so required to do so. Even though you might have, like, 56 Pikmin, uh, you just treat it as, like, one whole... That is I treat it as my, big. I treat it as my, like my ammo more than what I'm gonna do with them. I see. So like Yoshi eggs. Yeah, it's more like Yoshi eggs than. So you wouldn't have like 32 on task A and and 16 on task B. No. Okay. That that is an important distinction. I play it more like an action game than an RTS. Yeah. Maybe that's a subgenre that is action RTS. You'd think that, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you do get um, micromanagement with the multiple captains, right? Yeah, Pikmin Three definitely tries to make it more like an RTS with moving around different captains. So and you have to strategize within the in the mission modes. Oh, I still haven't played those. Should I? Eh, only if you're, like, Pikmin-style strategy. I feel like there was more effort put into the mission modes than the story mode. Oh, really? At times. But even though I, pre- even though I prefer the story mode over the mission modes, there's definitely more interesting enemy placement in mission mode than in story mode. So mission mode was more... Uh, like, the challenges were more interesting. Yeah. And Adrian, is Pikmin an RTS? Um, battle mode is without a doubt an RTS. Like, there's no action part to that. You have to play that like an RTS if you want to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Because it is R- about either stealing your opponent's marble or collecting for yellow marbles. And you kind of have to balance two different goals because even if you try to go for their marble, which is in itself is already kind of hard because they're going to defend their base, if they just collect the four yellow marbles, that's it. They won. So that sort of balance between two different goals definitely brings out more of the RTS aspect in Pikmin 2. Uh, they don't do that in Pikmin 3, I think. I think they have the bingo battle. No, they do. Think- yeah, the bingo battle. Yeah, but, but it's that's not just the like uh, looking at your, your bingo card, and see yeah. what you need. It's like a checklist more than an RTS, I guess. I think it still accomplishes the same same thing. The difference is that instead of four marbles, it's four whatever the hell you need to get, and then you got to go get it. Mm-hmm. And then if you can see the other person's bingo card, you can get in their way, make it harder for them to get what well, they need. I think you both have the same bingo card, actually. Oh, so you're going to be fighting over the same stuff then? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, Pikmin multiplayer, when it's not co-op, uh, definitely an RTS. Uh, Pikmin single player, I only played Pikmin 2, but the single player, you can play it like an RTS. I know I did. Uh, I tried to beat Pikmin 2 in 14 days because I thought that was the actual time limit, but the strategy guide, um, I was not reading the strategy guide properly. It says, here's how you can beat Pikmin 2 in 14 days, not you have to beat it, so. Uh, yeah, I forced, I imposed that challenge on myself, but, yeah. 
you can play like an RTS, but um, because of the lack of a time limit, it's not like Pikmin 1 where you have to do that. You can you can kind of take as long as you want, although you'll find that you'll be very slow if you do take things like that. If you don't play it like an RTS, getting the treasures uh, will definitely take you much longer than if you were to play like an RTS. I guess you can say that's that uh, difficulty scaling where you can decide whether or not you even want to use the two different captains or just always keep them together. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Yeah. What about you, Greg? I guess I always thought of it as an RTS. Just because... That's what I wanted you to believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, I, yeah, I always felt like I wasn't doing it right in that I was playing it like Shouty. But that's that's how I enjoy it. I don't. That's why I enjoy the boss. Uh, the you can play just the, against just the bosses in mission in mission mode, and that I really enjoyed that. Okay, that I could see engaging, but just like collecting X Pikmin and then walking up to a wall and taking down the wall, and then your mission is over. Like that's not interesting gameplay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was never I skilled agree. enough to like multitask and make the gameplay yeah. interesting. Yeah. I don't find multitasking be fun. Oh. <laughs> it's just something that I have to, I might have to do. It's yeah. a job. Pikmin one. Yeah. I haven't played Pikmin one, but I know that was the big deal about Pikmin it's one. It's either it's either that... a job or a side effect of ADD. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Pikmin 1 forced you to do that more. Yeah, Pikmin 1 has a lot of focus. Yeah. And I remember Richard said, his like I remember his exact words was like, they went the Yoshi's Island route with Pikmin 2, where they basically just let you take as long as you want. I mean, minus the day timer. But when you're in the dungeons, yeah, you can take as long as you want. Of course. What do you mean by Yoshi's Island route? Oh, the fact that you, Mario has a timer, Yoshi's Island does not. Oh. So you can take yeah. as long as you want trying to find whatever secrets, red coins, flower thingies, etc. By the way, I've never actually played the original Yoshi's Island. Oh my. Uh, Yoshi's New Island is the first Yoshi game I've ever played, and I'm playing oh it right my now. God. It's pretty faithful to the original. <laughs> yeah. Um, can take that as what you will from someone like Golem. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of Yoshi's Island. Ah, uh, well, I don't know if I am either because um, well, I've only done the first world so far. It's it's okay. It's not that easy. I have died, but um, it is definitely a different. It is definitely not like a Mario game. It's it's that just the whole egg throwing, egg, egg tossing thing. That's that's different. I did play Yoshi's Story, but even that game isn't like this one where no, they were healthily different. I prefer the egg tossing in Yoshi's Story. I prefer egg tossing in Yoshi's Island. Oh, well, uh, I don't like <laughs> how you get the bounce eggs. Yeah. So, Shouty, any final words? Um. Uh, drink hot water after pressing your teeth and you'll get the taste out. Oh, that's a good tip. Uh, Adrian, any final words? 
Um, no. All right. That is a good final word. WarioFan63, any final words? Are these going to be my final, final words? That's uh, a little morbid. Oh, God. For a game podcast. Oh, God. I don't think anything's too morbid for a game podcast. Uh, I'll put that one in my notebook, Shouty. <laughs> You'll be eating those words later. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> All right, well... uh Thanks for joining me through this kind of confused investigation of Terry Dingma combat. Later. Later. Music on this podcast was taken from Terra Enigma. I'll leave you with this final thought. Elements in one part of a game will complement each other, and between different parts of the game, the elements from those parts will complement each other, too. How big is the difference between elements? How big is the difference between groups of elements? What do they share in common? Get a handle on these, and you've gone a long way to pin down the game's design space. dog whistle that was a real moment this chapter was probably the one where i've had to look up what to do the most and some of the things where like oh because there's just there was only one because i was trying to explore norfest and the one godforsaken treasure chest i didn't pick up was the one that had the uh the dog whistle well i guess there are two things at play here one it is hard to see exits from a room when there's so much of the border of the room is obscured by trees. But also, there honestly aren't that many branches in the paths on, or in Norfest. How ironic, considering it's a, it's a forest. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if I can lay blame on the game for that, but um, it is a, it was kind of a downer moment for me. Because um, that was a section that I got stuck on, kind of banged my head for a bit, going, "What do I do?" Because uh, you know, I'm not—I wasn't even aware there was a dog whistle, and it's like, "Oh, you got to find a dog whistle." I'm like, "Where is it?" And then, <laughs> I, yeah, it tells me there's a dog whistle chest, and I'm like, "I thought I explored everything." And then, I was, oh, here it is. Here's the stupid thing. It's like there was only one. There was only one treasure chest that I didn't get, and that's the one that had the dog whistle. And yeah, and then I went in. And, if you read the books in the library. In um the Loire Castle. Yes, I did do you that. You know about it. Dog whistle. The dog whistle. Oh, in the castle. Okay. Yeah, in the library. Read the books. Ah, uh, ah, that's what I get. Do you know how many books are in that in library? And... Have you seen those what? bookshelves? It could take what ages books? to read all of those. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the books... almost give you three. Three blocks of text or anything like that. 
even the books in the Sylvan Castle, they weren't that obvious, but when you did realize that, oh, you could read these things, then, I mean, even then I kind of figured out that, well, if they're telling me to get a code, something, the library is the only thing that could have something that could give me a code. So that's when I figured, do you actually read these things? Yes, you do. And then there's only so many books because the library is mostly empty. So for Sylvan Castle, I didn't have that problem. Yeah, people were not returning books to that library. <laughs> but it was yeah. the Soulmites. I'm uh, I'm hoping next time we get back to Terranigma to talk about puzzles. <laughs>